Section 3 of an inaugural dissertation on pulmonary consumption. This is a LibreVox recording. All LibreVox recordings in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibreVox.org. Inaugural dissertation on pulmonary consumption. Section 3. The proximate cause of the disease. Having taken a view of the causes and symptoms of phthisis pulmonalis, we are now prepared to investigate the proximate cause of the disease. From the nature and extent of these symptoms, it appears evidently disease of the whole system, not confined merely to the lungs. The proximate cause, as taught by Dr. Hosack in his lectures, is an inflammation of the lungs, terminating either in a purulent secretion or ulceration in their substance. This opinion is much strengthened by the analogy before remarked between pathysis pulmonalis and pneumonia. It is a little singular that Dr. Rush, notwithstanding he had remarked this close analogy, and although he speaks of inflammatory fever as a part of the disease and prescribes bloodletting in its treatment, should yet have made debility its proximate cause. This is only one instance among many of physicians arriving at precisely the same modes of treatment by directly opposite routes. If that theory of inflammation be admitted, which makes debility its cause, so far it is also the proximate cause of phthysis pulmonalis. In the secondary species of phthysis, hereafter to be considered, debility may be fairly ranked as the proximate cause, and the indications of cure correctly drawn from it. But in the primary disease under consideration, who had found our indications on this basis, and thence deduce the propriety of exhibiting powerful tonics in the first stage of the disease, when brought to the test of practice, its error would soon become sufficiently glaring. Most of the causes have been successively treated of by authors, but to shew their inconsistency and absurdity, it is only necessary to observe that, quote, the existence of an acid or an alkali, of chemical acrimony, or mechanical changes in the blood, of corroding volatile particles, and even of animalcular in the lungs, have been vaguely conjectured to be the cause of pulmonary ulcer and hectic fever, end quote. Quotation from Dr. Reed. Assuming then, inflammation of the lungs, and consequent ulceration of their substance as the proximate cause of phthysis pulmonalis, we naturally deduce the following indications in the treatment of the disease. 1. To endeavour to relieve the inflammation of the lungs and promote its resolution. 2. If, notwithstanding all our efforts, separation takes place, to give sufficient support and tone to the system to enable the ulcers to heal. In fulfilling these indications, our first object is to remove the remote causes, where it is possible. If the patient's occupation is one of those which predisposes to consumption, unless it be abandoned, or at least so modified as to correct the objectional parts of it, we cannot hope to cure the disease. If the disease arises from the suppression of an accustomed evacuation, our utmost endeavours must be made to restore it. Should suppression of the menses be the cause, means calculated to produce their return must be resorted to. If an ulcer or fistula is healed up, they must be reopened, or issues established in more convenient situations. In short, the rule is plain and simple. Remove the remote causes, wherever it is predictable. Among the remedies which are necessary to fulfil the first indication, the most prominent is bloodletting. This remedy has been strongly advocated by many of the most distinguished authors who have written on consumption, and its propriety admitted by all under certain circumstances. Probably, most of the injurious effects attributed to it may be accounted for by a proper distinction not having been made between primary and secondary pathysis pulmonalis. When bleeding has been practised in the secondary form of the disease, it has been generally injurious, and hence an odium has been cast upon its employment in any circumstances. In the same manner, it has done mischief, and when used too late in primary phthysis, and thus another groundless argument furnished against the remedy. But the indiscriminate use of bloodletting is not here contended for. Its judicious and cautious use, when inflammatory action is evident, alone is intended to be advocated. On the other hand, too timid practices may induce us to withhold the lancet when it is necessary, we may thus do as much injury by losing the proper time for action as we would have done by pushing the remedy too far. It is difficult to fix the period beyond which it is improper to bleed in consumption. 
Dr. Hoseg insists that as long as there is any pain or soreness on taking a full inspiration, the lancet is necessary. This rule is not applicable to practice, but if we adopt it, we may bleed the patient until he dies. Until that moment will the pain in some instances continue. It is not infrequent, after the patient has been exhausted by a colliquative sweat and profuse diarrhoea, for pain in the breast to recur at intervals, a few days before death, nor a practitioner, under such circumstances, would feel himself justified in using the lancet. But this rule is incorrect in another point of view. In some cases, it will prevent our using this valuable remedy when it is necessary. On the authority of Dr. Reed, it is asserted that pain is not always present in phthisis pulmonalis and may not occur during the whole course of the disease. Reference has been already made to Dr. Herberden to prove the same fact. On this subject, it is impossible to fix any precise rule. The strength and habits of the patient, the urgency of the symptoms, and state of the pulse must all be recollected and adverted to in making up our judgment as to the propriety of the remedy. In general, perhaps we may say that after the formation of matter is perfectly ascertained, it is improper to bleed. This, however, is not without exceptions. Cases sometimes occur, after this period, in which the symptoms of high inflammatory action arise and where the lancet is indicated. It is now generally admitted that the buffy appearance of the blood is by no means an infallible evidence of the necessity of the repetition of bloodletting, nor is its cupped form a better proof of the existence of information. Many writers observed that the buffy coat appears in the blood drawn in consumption at the latest periods of the disease. A remarkable and decided case of enteritis occurred during the last winter in the New York hospital, which very large and repeated bleedings were made use of, with the good effect of curing the patient, and yet neither buff nor the cup-like form appeared in the smallest degree in the blood drawn. This case alone is sufficient to prove how equivocal are these appearances of the blood as tests of information. Nevertheless, the judicious practitioner will not fail to observe these circumstances, and as they so frequently accompany information, will consider them, when attended with other evidences, as properly influencing his judgment on the propriety of bleeding. If the abstraction of blood from the system generally is useful, no less so is it when, drawn from the part itself, by the application of cupping glasses, the scarificator, to the chest, this mode of obtaining blood is peculiarly useful in those frequent cases where the patient is too much debilitated to bear the loss of much blood, but the existence of inflammatory action makes its abstraction necessary. Emetics are a powerful remedy in the treatment of phthisis. They not only promote expectoration and relieve the distressing cough in the first stage of the disease, but by their general relaxing effects upon the system, are useful in reducing inflammatory action. The use of this remedy, however, should not in general be commenced until bloodletting has been premised. Otherwise, in plethoric habit, full vomiting might induce hemoptysis. Practitioners have differed very much in the choice of emetics proper in this disease. The endomonial prevalences and ipecacuana, as acting more generally upon the system in reducing excitement, and from their good effects in other febrile diseases, appear to be the most proper. But in the last stage of consumption, where our object is to relieve the pulmonary symptoms without debilitating the patient, the sulfates of zinc and copper are preferable. Emetics are not only useful when exhibited for the purposes of full vomiting, but medicines of the same class given as diaphoretics are also proper. With this view, the various preparations of antimony are in use. Small doses of the antimonial powder combined with calomel have been found, perhaps, one of the best pseudorifics that can be employed, and as such are frequently useful in phthisis. No medicine is superior to this combination in reducing inflammatory action, and it frequently has a better effect by proving both emetic and purgative. As a pseudorific, warm bathing may be very useful, and is an agreeable remedy in the inflammatory stage of phthisis. As the warm bath is useful in relaxing the surface of the body generally, in a similar manner inhaling warm air by means of Mudge's apparatus relaxes the inflamed membrane of the bronchi and acts as a fomentatiori there. 
The same good effect as is produced by warmth and moisture upon any other inflamed surface of the body. This remedy gives great relief in the cough and hoarseness, so distressing in phthisis pulmonalis. With the same view of counteracting inflammation, cathartics may be prescribed. As in other febrile diseases, so in phthisis, the bowels are frequently torpid and require the frequent use of aperient medicines. Saline and mercurial cathartics, possessing the greatest power in diminishing excitement, are perhaps the most proper in this disease. But as it is an object not to induce too much debility, the use of drastic purgatives should be avoided as much as possible, and be confined to the earliest periods of the disease. During its advanced stage, the valve should be kept open by mild laxatives and enemata, which tend least to debilitate the patient. Blisters, setons, initially relieve the inflammation of the lungs, and produce a new determination to the service with the happiest effects. Most writers agree in recommending repeated blisters to the chest as an useful remedy, and with reason, but it is to be regretted that they have been suffered to usurp the place of a more powerful remedy of the same class. It is permitted to see issues. If we may judge from the effect of ulcers and fistulas, which palliate all the symptoms of confirmed pathysis, while they continue, but whose healing restores the disease, it would appear that the establishment of similar drains in the form of issues ought to have a good effect. In caries of the spine and disease of the hip joint, where the inflammation in the cellular structure of the bone seems to be very analogous to that in the cells of the lungs. Issues are used with the greatest benefit. In these cases, they are uniformly preferred to repeated blistering, and experience is sanctioned the preference. Issues are preferable to blisters by their constant and uniform action, whereas the latter remedy has its effect continually interrupted by healing up and requiring renewal. In general, blisters appear to be more useful in acute diseases, which may soon be subdued, but in phthysis pulmonalis, which continues so long, and whose progress is so slow, issues appear to be the better remedy. Dr. Mudge was so well convinced of their efficacy that he assures us he cured himself of an incipient consumption by a large issue between the shoulders, but Oz also recommends them and relates several cases in which they were used with the best effect. But if this remedy be tried, it should not be done timidly and with the fear of giving pain. When used at all, issues should be large and effectual, not only sufficient to contain a single pea, but at least a dozen. This is not the only remedy which has fallen into disrepute by a trifling and inefficient mode of employing it, but as blisters are preferred by many of the most judicious practitioners, their use may easily and with advantage be combined with that of issues. While a large issue is kept open between the shoulders, successive blisters may be applied to the chest. Many patients, perhaps, would not submit to so severe a mode of treatment, but it is only by such active and efficient practice that we can hope to cure this formidable malady. It is only in the first stage of consumption that much benefit is to be expected from this class of remedies, or at all events, before the patient is much debilitated. In its latest periods, they would tend rather to add to the debility already induced by the disease. At any time, however, when the patient is not too much reduced, they may be prescribed with advantage. Mercury, given until it produced salivation, has frequently cured phthysis pulmonalis. It is used with greatest advantage in its first stage, but after the inflammatory action has been in some measure reduced by means of bloodletting and the other remedies proposed, before these evacuations have been premised, it would tend rather to increase the inflammation, while in the advanced stage it would add too much to the debility of the patient. It generally succeeds only when it affects the mouth, and therefore to secure this effect and prevent its running off by the bowels, it should be combined with opium. But the best form of exhibiting mercury is one much in use with my worthy friend and preceptor, Dr. Burrow. Calomel, combined with small doses of antimonial powder, given morning and evening until it affects the mouth, is the form proposed. In this way, it may be given at an early period of the disease than would otherwise be proper, by the constant determination to the skin kept up by the antimonial powder 
obviating the tendency which mercury has to increase inflammatory action. At the same time, it serves to keep the bowels open and make almost every other medicine unnecessary. On the other hand, if it acts too much on the bowels, it may be usefully combined with opium, which adds to its diaphoretic effect. The good effects of this mode of exhibiting mercury is strikingly illustrated by the result of the following case, which occurred in the practice of Dr. Burrow within a few months past. An unidentified miss, aged about 14 years, had been for six months past afflicted with some cough, pain in the chest and difficulty of breathing. She was affected with loss of appetite, emaciation and profuse sweats at night. Her pulses were frequent. She had the peculiar pearl-like appearance of the adnata, frequent attacks of diarrhoea and an expectoration much resembling pus. She was attacked with chills about the middle of the day, followed by considerable excitement, aversion to motion and drowsiness succeeded by great prostration of strength, palpitation and hurried breathing on ascending a height or engaging in any considerable bodily exertion, ascended with a livid appearance of the lips, evidencing a difficulty in the passage of blood through the lungs. It was determined to put her upon the use of calomel and pulve, Jacob, which were given in small doses every night and morning. A blistering plaster was also applied to the chest and kept in an irritable state for a considerable length of time. The diet was ordered to be soft, mild and nutritious, the mercury and antimonial medicine were occasionally emitted when they acted more on the bowels than the skin, or occasional anodynes were administered to restrain their action on the ailmentary canal. Some weeks elapsed before the mercury produced any effect upon the salivary glands, which was one of the objects aimed at. As soon as the mouth became sensibly affected, the symptoms were generally mitigated. A temporary suspension of the use of the remedies became necessary, in consequence of the considerable effect produced by the mercury. When the soreness of the mouth abated, Small and less frequent doses of the calomel were given so as to keep up a tenderness of the gums several weeks longer. The effects of the chest became now entirely relieved, and it was thought advisable to suspend the use of the mercurial treatment, the effects of which were suffered to pass off rather than be relieved or cured. From this time no medicines were employed, except a small quantity of a weak infusion of colombo as a tonic. Long before the patient's mouth enabled her to eat, her appetite became craving, she was indulged in eating moderately of such food as she had a particular desire for, and she soon was enabled to take exercise without inconvenience. She did not now complain of any pain in the chest, the cough left her, the bowels became regular, there was no recurrence of night sweats, she began to gain flesh, the countenance assumed the healthy aspect, and the peevishness under which she had long laboured was effectually cured. She now slept well, and gradually returning to her former habits, is at the end of five months after discontinuing her remedies in perfect health. Digitalis is a remedy in phthisis, which has excited much acrimonious controversy among practitioners of medicine. As always happens in these contests, it has been praised too highly by one party and condemned too severely by the other. When first introduced, it seemed to promise the complete eradication of consumption, and it almost appeared that digitalis was as specific in the cure of that disease as mercury and syphilis. Dr. McGuinness, of the Royal Navy Hospital at Plymouth, England, published a paper containing an account of 72 cases of incipient or confirmed consumption in semen and marines treated with digitalis. Of these, 25 with ulcerated lungs recovered and 15 from the stage previous to ulceration. 13 of the 72 in an early stage of ulceration were discharged, greatly relieved, and 9 in the previous stage. In 10 cases, the medicine failed, but in some of these it gave considerable relief. Badoz assures us that 3 cases out of 5 of tubular consumption in this practice had recovered under the use of digitalis. Kinglake insists that one of three cases of a tubular stage of consumption may be cured by this medicine. Dr. Curie informs us that digitalis may be used with safety and success in cases where the lancet can no longer be employed. These results in the practice of men, distinguished in their profession, 
although they may be somewhat warped by prejudice, are extremely flattering, and prove at least that the medicine has some power. But like all other new remedies, Digitalis has been rated too highly by those who first used it, delighted that they had discovered a medicine which, in some cases, would cure a disease, which they had been accustomed to look upon as totally incurable, these physicians have suffered themselves to attend too exclusively to its successful results and to neglect cases in which it has failed. Other practitioners, on reading their exaggerated statements, have tried the remedy, but finding themselves frequently disappointed, have gone to the other extreme and condemned it entirely. Their representations are to be admitted with as much qualification as those of their opponents, and the judicious physician will not suffer himself to be exclusively guided by either. That in certain cases, digitars will cure consumption cannot be doubted, but we also have to regret that it very frequently fails. It was prescribed in the New York hospital, under the direction of Dr. Hammersley, during the last winter, in six cases which I have witnessed, of evident and well-marked phthisis. Of these, two patients were perfectly cured, one was nearly recovered, and is only retained in the hospital for a silent cough, which is yielding, a fourth was discharged at his own request, but evidently relieved, the fifth commenced the use of digitalis, at a very advanced period of the disease, and soon died. In the last it failed entirely, and appeared rather to have done injury. Having ascertained that digitalis does sometimes succeed in curing phthisis pulmonalis, it remains to discover what are the cases in which we may exhibit it with success. For this purpose it would be desirable to ascertain the modus operandi of the medicine. Here writers have differed as widely as in their account of its success in practice. One also determines it to act by diminishing the force and frequency of the circulation, reducing inflammatory action. A second attributes its salutary effect to its operation on the kidneys, while a third believes it no longer to be of advantage, where it increases the discharge by urine, excites nausea, vomiting, purging or any undue excitement, but attributes its beneficial effects to its stimulant efficiency in invigorating the arterial and muscular energy of the system, and a fourth insists that by promoting the action of the absorbents it cures a consumption. These conflicting and opposite opinions constrain us to admit that further inquiry is necessary, if we can rest satisfied as to the mode in which digitalis acts, it must be confessed that this medicine is extremely uncertain in its operation. Its most evident effect, and the most insisted on, of reducing the frequency of the pulse is by no means certain, and indeed, it is the opinion of Dr. Beddoes that the force and strength of the pulse are increased by it. In the New York Hospital, I have witnessed frequent cases in which its continued exhibition produced no effect in reducing either the force or frequency of the pulse, and in some instances no effect at all seemed to be produced by it case occurred in the institution in October last, which a patient, by his own carelessness, took six drams of tinct. Digitars with no evident injury. In examining the effect of this medicine on the pulse, it is necessary to recollect the remark of Beddoes, that it is very different in the recumbent and erect posture, the pulse frequently being found to be reduced in frequency and irregular in the former, though recovering its frequency and regularity in the latter situation. From the same author we learn, that if this remedy do not produce any good effect within three weeks, we can expect no advantage from it at all. It is generally admitted that digitals will succeed only in the first stage of phthisis pulmonalis. In the last or ulcerated stage of that malady, it will not save our patient, but we are apprehensive, will rather hasten his dissolution. As it is acknowledged to be an uncertain medicine, we should not place our whole dependence upon it, nor suffer it to take the place of bloodletting and the rest of the antiphlogistic treatment before recommended. It should be used rather as an auxiliary than a principal remedy. From its uncertainty of operation, it requires a cautious exhibition. The dose for an adult is from 10 to 15 drops of the saturated tincture, three times a day, and gradually increased until some effect is produced. The use of factitious airs in consumption is now very much abandoned. 
no essential benefit has ultimately appeared to be derived from them, although in the first instance they produce some apparently good effect. Of much more advantage is a sea voyage in a mild climate. The benefit evidently derived from sea voyages has been attributed to various causes. The nausea and vomiting from seasickness, the uniform motion and gentle regular exercise produced by sailing, and the uniformity and mildness of the atmosphere of the ocean, so evident at a distance from the land, probably all combined in producing these happy results. We can hardly suppose, however, with Dr. Mudge, that the exhalations from the tar and pitch about the ship, taken into the lungs in respiration, have any agency in the effect produced. That whatever be the cause, it is not at all infrequent for consumptive patients to experience immediate relief after having been a few days at sea. A sea voyage should produce permanent benefit, should be long continued, and what is of still more importance, terminate in a mild climate. Every winter, instances occur in this city of consumptive patients being restored to health by a voyage to the south of France or some other country of similar temperature. The climate most grateful to these patients is one whose temperature is uniform, not subject to any sudden variations, and where the atmosphere is dry and pure. The island of Madeira possesses all these requisites. The part of it best adapted to the purpose in question is thus described by Dr. Adams, a physician of the island, in a letter to his friend in London. Quote, the valley of Funchal is defended by immense hills from every wind but the south, where it is open to the sea breeze. This preserves a temperature so even, as is known in any other part of the world. Our winters may be compared to your summers in everything but the length of days, and those sudden changes from heat to cold, to which you are subject. The thermometer with us is often steady within doors, or varies scarcely a degree for weeks together. During winter its whole range is from 58 to 65, and in summer from 70 to 75, rarely amounting to 80, the heat always being tempered by a breeze in proportion to the force of the sun, the dryness of our atmosphere is not less remarkable. End quote. If this description be correct, Madeira has a climate possessing every requisite to make it most favourable to phthysical patients. The southern parts of the United States are frequently resorted to, also, by the consumptive with great benefit. I have had the satisfaction of seeing a young friend return from Charleston, a short time since, perfectly restored to health, who, during the last autumn, was attacked with repeated hemoptysis and other symptoms of incipient phthysis. It is to be regretted that change of climate, a remedy of so much advantage in the early stage of consumption, should so often be postponed, until no possibility of recovery remains. It is too often the fate of such patients, to leave their homes in quest of health, merely to find a foreign grave, resorting to that remedy which should have been first, as a last effort of despair. To this cause alone, May we attribute its frequent inefficiency, and unfortunately the same causes contributed too much to bring the remedy into disrepute. While from any circumstances, change of climate is impracticable, it may to some extent be imitated by confining the patient to apartments whose temperatures is kept constant and uniform. This has been tried with some success and is probably the remedy of the same class, next in power, but much inferior to a warm climate. Beddoes made use of it in several cases with relief to his patients but it has not yet been sufficiently tested to establish its character's remedy in Pathysis pulmonalis. Besides the use of the remedies which have been enumerated, with the view of effecting a radial cure of this disease, there are some symptoms occurring in its first stage which require immediate relief. Hemoptysis sometimes comes on in such a manner as to be very alarming to the patient. Bloodletting in large quantities, and repeated in proportion to the strength and habits of the patient and violence of the symptoms, is then absolutely necessary, unless the plethora which is oppressing the system and exciting the hemorrhage from the lungs, be relieved by general bloodletting, blood will not cease to pour out from that viscous. At the same time, the free exhibition of saline cathartics, a blister of the chest, a rigidly abstemious diet and a strict adherence to the antiphlogistic 
regimen must accompany this treatment. Peruvian bark, calibiate, an elixir of vitriol so often used in active hemorrhage during the inflammatory stage of consumption cannot but be injurious. They increase the force of the circulation and consequently the disposition to hemorrhage. The same symptom arising from an opposite cause they may be prescribed with advantage. Common salt, administered dry in the manner directed by Dr. Rush, has been found by experience to be very useful in abating hemorrhage from either cause, but it should not be depended on alone, nor suffer to take the place of the treatment just detailed. If possible, we should anticipate the occurrence of hemoptysis with our remedies, and thus prevent the formation of a habit of spitting blood, which when once established is difficult to destroy. The usual precursors of the symptom are a saltish taste in the mouth, a sense of irritation at the upper part of the trachea, and some oppression and difficulty of breathing. At this time, before the hemorrhage has commenced, bloodletting and the rest of the remedies mentioned above should be actively exhibited. Quote, meet the coming disease. End quote. A distressing cough at this period also requires the attention of the physician. From its occurrence more particularly at night, it disturbs the rest and adds much to the sufferings of the patient. It should be alleviated by opiates, accompanied with any of the mild demulcent remedies, generally denominated pectorals. Mudge's apparatus for inhaling the steam of warm water may also be used with relief, especially on going to bed. When all inflammation is gone and the second stage of consumption is societally formed, a different mode of treatment becomes necessary. Little indeed is now to be hoped for from any treatment, as a radical cure, but our patient is not to be abandoned. If he cannot be cured, his sufferings may be materially mitigated, and he may be directed to avoid such things as may increase his malady. Nor should we entirely despair of performing a radical cure, Solitary cases are related by many authors of consumptive patients being cured in every stage of the disease. Many of these cases, perhaps, have been mistaken for phthisis pulmonalis, but of some of them we cannot doubt. The authority from which they come is too high to permit us to hesitate. The remedies last mentioned in the treatment of the first stage of consumption may yet be proper, although not so great a prospect of success should still be tried. These are a sea voyage, change of climate, and confinement to apartments whose temperature is regulated, but all the debilitating remedies before recommended are now to be avoided. The lancet in general is improper, although in some few instances, the occurrence of acute inflammation at this period still requires its cautious use. Drastic cathartic should not be used. The bowels of torpid must be kept open by gentle laxatives and enemata. Antimonial and other debilitating emetics should not now be exhibited, but the vitriol emetics may still be prescribed with advantage. The sulphate of zinc given in such doses is to excite occasional vomiting, is frequently very useful, and especially where much irritation is present. It was introduced and strongly recommended by Dr. Mosley in his A Treatise on Tropical Diseases. His vitriolic solution is certainly an useful remedy in relieving dyspnea and promoting expectoration. Instead of debilitating as antimonials do, he assures us that its emetic effects are instantaneous, not harassing the patient, but always leaving the stomach strongly invigorated. Mr. Warburton, the present house physician of the New York Hospital, has assured me that he has frequently prescribed it in that institution with evident benefit. With similar intentions, Dr. Center, in the Medical and Chirurgical Review, published in 1793, recommends the sulphate of copper. At this time, blisters will be preferable to either setons or issues, as they relieve the local symptoms without producing a constant debilitating discharge. Indeed, they should be used in such a manner as to produce as little discharge as possible. With this view, they should not be kept open by stimulating dressings, but be healed up, and occasionally renewed. With the same intention, stimulating places may be applied to the chest with advantage, and in general are preferable to blisters. To support the patient's strength, as was proposed in the second indication, tonics are necessary. Of these, some of the simple bitters are preferable, as columbo, gentian, bonacet, chamomile, etc. 
but we should be careful not to exhibit them during the paroxysms of hectic fever, but during its intervals. Peruvian bark has not been found admissible. It produces a sense of stricture and oppression of breathing, adds to the cough, makes the pulse quick and hard, and hemoptysis is not unfrequently the consequence of its exhibition. Dr. Fothergill dwells particularly on the abuse of this medicine in consumption. As stimulating and bitter medicines, the Polgala Seneca and Aristolochia Serpentaria have been recommended in this stage of Phthisis pulmonalis. The stimulating basalms and gums are also proper in this stage. They have been highly recommended by Morton, and myrrh in particular is prescribed with great confidence by Simmons. They are objected to by Fothergill on the ground that by their stimulating properties they increase the inflammation of the lungs. His objection appears well-founded, while symptoms of acute inflammation still exist, but after they have subsided, the cough and other distressing symptoms of the last stage of phthisis may be much alleviated by these medicines. By their stimulating effects upon the whole system, also, they may be useful at a time when the patient is sinking under great debility. As stimulating applications are frequently found necessary and useful to indolent ulcers on the surface of the body, it naturally occurred that similar applications might be made with advantage to ulcers of the lungs. With this view, the steam of tar water and the vapour of sulphuric ether inhaled in respiration have been used in the treatment of consumption. Footnote. Dr. Borrow formerly had a patient labouring under consumption, a manufacturer of tinware who was uniformly relieved of his phthistical symptoms when engaged in soldering tin, a process in which a great deal of resin is used and constantly inhaled in respiration. End footnote. With the same restrictions as are necessary with the stimulating gums and basalms, these remedies may be beneficial. It is not probable, however, that any permanent relief can be derived from them. They can only mitigate symptoms. To check the profuse sweats which occur at this period and add materially to the debility of the patient, the elixir of vitriol is a useful medicine. As a general tonic, it acts beneficially also upon the whole system. With the view of quieting the cough and procuring rest at night, opiates are necessary. Unfortunate are we that we have in our possession a remedy which, although it will not permanently cure the disease, palliates the symptoms, at least for a time, and makes more smooth the path to death. It is true that opium produces some ill effects, it debilitates the stomach and injures the appetite, but when the symptoms are urgent, it cannot for these reasons be dispensed with. By lulling pain and leaving rest to the watchful patient, it more than counterbalances these disadvantages. The humulus, lupulus, or common hops, does not possess the objectionable properties of opium, but with its anodyne combines some tonic powers, and promises to be an excellent substitute for that medicine. The large and frequent use of syrups in the form of expectorant mixtures and linctuses to alleviate cough is very injurious. They claw the appetite, destroy the tone of the stomach, and prevent the taking of nutritious ailment, which is now so necessary and frequent without producing any material relief of the other symptoms for which they are prescribed. The use of opiates is necessary also to check the profuse diarrheas, which now alternate with costiveness and reduce the already debilitated patient. With the same view, the chalk mixture may be used with advantage, and these stringent medicines, Kino and Catechu, with others of the same class. It is not unfrequent for hemoptysis to occur at this period, as well as in the earlier stages of consumption. Sometimes it is the effect of some temporary excitement and may be relieved by the loss of a few ounces of blood, but frequently this evacuation cannot be borne, and the hemorrhage proceeds rather from debility in the vessels of the lungs than any increased force of the circulation. We must then trust to astringents, muriate of soda, sulfuric acid, and alum. End of section 3. Read by Inkel.